0: Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders around the human experience.
1: I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior with our guests that will improve your relationships, your well-being, and your organization. From best-selling authors to researchers to leaders in nonprofits, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in behavioral science, specifically from psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. And in this episode, Tim and I were able to speak
0: with an author and researcher that we think you are going to love. Her new book is called You Have More Influence Than You Think, and you do. You do
1: have more influence than you think, and it is a fantastic, fantastic read. Absolutely. It really was, Kurt. And of course, we're talking about Vanessa Bonds, who was introduced to us by John Barge. Shout out to John. Yay, John. Yay, John. And uh, Vanessa is a social psychologist and professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. She holds a PhD in psychology from Columbia and an AB from Brown University. But look, let's be really clear here. Vanessa is much bigger than her credentials. Yes. Yes, she is, Tim. Vanessa's writings have appeared in the New York Times
0: and Harvard Business Review, and her research has been featured by the Wall Street Journal and on one of our favorite podcasts, Hidden Brain. Shout out to Shankar. Shout out. There we go. But near and dear to our hearts is the fact that she wrote her new book about something we really easily overlook, the sort of influence
1: that we have with other people. Absolutely. That, her book draws on lots of original research to illustrate why we fail to recognize the influence we have and how that lack of awareness can lead us to miss opportunities or accidentally misuse our power as well. She weaves together compelling stories with cutting-edge science to answer these questions that we're often afraid to ask, like, how much did that person you know, take to heart what I said earlier? Or did he notice whether I was here today? Or... Like, will they agree to help me if I ask them? Those kind of questions.
0: Our conversation with Vanessa focused on her research and on her book, which we want to urge you to go out and get today. It's fantastic. But most of all, we had a great conversation about the importance that our interactions and conversations with other people in our lives has. We hold a lot of sway with them. That is, as Christina Bicchieri says, we are part of the social norm, not just living through it. We help create it, and particularly with those that are close to us. And
1: this, this, Tim, is a really good thing. It absolutely is. And with that, Groovers, look, we encourage you just to sit back, relax a little bit, grab a glass full, maybe even overflowing with personal influence, and enjoy our conversation with Vanessa Bonds. Vanessa Bonds, welcome to Behavioral Grooves.
2: Thank you. It is such a pleasure to be here.
1: It is
0: our pleasure to have you here. And as always, we start with our speed round. Again, speed round is just the nomenclature. It never actually ends up being a speed fast. round. So <laughs> we'll just, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So first question, do you prefer coffee or tea?
2: Uh, definitely coffee.
0: Definitely coffee. Yes. Do you make the coffee yourself or do you are you a purchaser of coffee? Do you go to Starbucks or your local coffee shop?
2: I will ingest coffee however <laughs> it is made, by whomever, however weak <laughs> or dark it is. Just, wow. <laughs> wow. Just give me the coffee. Yeah.
1: We just got off we just got off a call with a guy in Switzerland who like makes his own flat white at home, like frauds his own milk and everything. You're on the other end of that spectrum. Just give me the damn caffeine, huh?
2: Yeah, I will appreciate like a really well done cup of coffee or a really nice latte. We have a place, Gimme Coffee, up here that just does these amazing lattes. And I appreciate it. I really do. But at the end of the day, I don't care. I mean, there's people who will wake up and be like, that coffee is too strong. I can't drink it. And I'm like, no way. There's nothing keeping me from drinking that cup of coffee.
1: (laughs) Oh, I love that. I love that. All right. Okay. Picard or James T. Kirk? Who's the better captain?
2: Definitely Picard. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You're a Next Generation uh, Star Trek fan
0: then?
2: Yeah. I grew up watching uh, Next Generation with my dad. And so it's just like kind of there's something very nostalgic about that for me.
0: Perfect. All right. I'm going to get to ask a musical question of you. So who would you rather have to dinner? Bronsky Beat or sleigh bells?
2: <laughs> um, I mean, definitely Bronski Beat. Yeah. Sleigh bells are cool and all, but I mean, I want to hear what was going on in the '80s, right? <laughs> Don't we want to hear all those stories?
1: So it'd be like a, a history lesson, then, basically.
0: And and we we, we took that from. Somewhere, I don't know where we found it, but we, we figured that
1: those were two of the, the bands that you might like. So um, I think that's somewhere <laughs> on
2: my Twitter, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah I, think, I think so. Okay, so last speed round question. Are we more likely to enjoy tasting chocolate by ourselves or with other people in the room?
2: Ah, getting into the research now. Um, Yeah, so that I actually have empirical evidence for my answer. And (laughs) (laughs) if it is good tasting chocolate, right, nice sweet chocolate, milk chocolate, whatever, uh, when other people are in the room tasting it with us. And that's based on work by Erica Boothby, who showed that when we enjoy things with other people, as opposed to just alone, that that experience is amplified Because at the same time that we're kind of enjoying the deliciousness of something, we're imagining how that other person is also enjoying it. And so you get this sort of booster effect of deliciousness.
1: But what happens if the chocolate is bad? What's the effect then?
2: So that's where it gets tricky, right? So her effect is not that things are better with other people, but that they are amplified with other people. And so if the chocolate is bad and she somehow managed to get her hands on some really unpleasant tasting chocolate, that was just incredibly bitter. And again, for me, I'm like, like the coffee. I don't know if that's possible, (laughs) but apparently apparently it was in this study. And um, this unpleasant tasting chocolate, when you ate that with another person and kind of knew someone else was also tasting this unpleasant thing, that experience was amplified. And so it actually tasted worse.
0: Wow. And... And the fact of the matter is that the people in the room with you, they don't have to be friends. You don't have to be talking with them. You don't have to be comparing notes on this. It is literally that they are just there with you. Is that—is that correct? Am I getting that research right?
2: That's right. It's a it's a wild effect in that way because it's no one is making eye contact, you know, where you might, you know, make a face that's like, oh, this is great and impact how someone else is is experiencing it. Um, No one's talking in these experiments. They literally are just in the same room with somebody else. And just the mere presence of someone else doing the thing that you're doing and sort of being aware that there is another mind experiencing the same thing makes you kind of think about it twice and it amplifies the experience.
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay, so we're talking about your brand new book, you have more influence than you think, which we're just going to going to go out on a limb here and say we love it. Just got to <laughs> say that because it's, it's not crazy. going out okay. on a
0: limb, Tim. That is not going out on a limb
1: at all. It's a, it's a fantastic book. So, yes. and, and so like the first thing that hit me was the spotlight effect. Was this idea that, "Oh, of course everyone's looking at me." And you talk about uh, the juxtaposition between the spotlight effect and, and this idea of influence. Could you just dig into that for just a minute?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting. The spotlight effect is an effect from a number of years ago that was done my, by my colleague here at Cornell, Tom Gilovich. And it's basically the idea that when we're self-conscious about something, so when we're having a bad hair day or when we're wearing an outfit we feel really insecure about, we think that everybody's paying attention to that embarrassing thing. But in fact, people are not paying as much attention as we think to that embarrassing thing. So, you know, if you say something stupid in a meeting and you're just obsessing about it after the fact, most people either didn't realize it or really didn't think it was that big of a deal, right? Um, But the interesting thing is that the same researcher who did the chocolate studies, Erica Boothby, has sort of updated the spotlight effect in this interesting way and shown that when we're not self-conscious about something, when we're just kind of going through our ordinary day, so we're not saying the stupid thing in the meeting, we're just sitting in the meeting, for example, that more people are noticing us than we tend to think. And so to sort of bring it into the idea of influence, basically, people are paying more attention to us than we realize when we're going about our daily lives, when we're just kind of stating things as usual which means we're kind of impacting people in lots of ways that we can talk about later. For example, you know, if we're eating something together in the same room, someone's noticing us, we're impacting their experience of eating that thing. But the sort of also the other sort of part of that with the spotlight effect is that when we are doing something super embarrassing, when you would be like, I don't want everybody to be looking at me, fewer people are looking at us than we actually think. So it's kind of a happy story <laughs> all around when you sort of take these yeah. two effects uh, next to each other.
0: I like it so that either extreme, this idea that we're not being noticed on one extreme and that we're, everybody is noticing on the other is actually, we're we're probably more in the middle of both of those in in, in both cases. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. And, and on the more positive end in both cases, right? So we're not as invisible as we think. For example, Erica calls this the invisibility cloak uh, illusion. It's like we walk through our lives thinking we're kind of in an invisibility cloak and no one's really paying attention to us. But actually, people are noticing us, right? And in many ways, that's uh, can be a good thing uh, if we're sort of having a positive impact as we're going about our lives. But at the same time, it's not for the embarrassing things that we worry about. So it's yeah. we're in the middle, but also in a positive way, on sort of both sides.
0: What so about Tim? When you we don't have to. to... Oh, <laughs> oh, I was I was going to say, Tim, you don't have to worry about all those mistakes you make in in when we talk here. Or, so you don't have <laughs> to worry about the, that as much. All any of anymore. our
1: conversations with guests... <laughs> the innumerable number of mistakes. I shouldn't worry about those. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, today? I'm just saying, you know, there, <laughs> <Okay>. you <go. laughs> there are times when I want to have the invisibility cloak on though. I, got yeah, there I, got are, that's, I, I will say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, is it, I can is understand it, that. And, and we can put that on right To to some degree.
2: I mean, so the illusion itself is that we think that we're more invisible than we actually are. So, I mean, I'm sure there are ways that we can sort of tune out. I mean, I have always loved sort of putting my earbuds in and just kind of ignoring everyone in my space. Um, And so that at least makes me feel like I'm a little bit more invisible and that can have the psychological effect of like, if I want to have that invisibility cloak, but in truth, people are noticing us more than we tend to realize. And actually, so this is related to a study that I did with Chembo Zhang and Francesca Gino, where we had people put on sunglasses Mm. and they actually felt more invisible and more anonymous than they actually were. Because, I mean, you still see a person, you put on sunglasses, you put on Earphones, like you're not invisible, you know, people can still see you, but people felt like they were more anonymous behind these sunglasses than they in fact were. And so we can't create that sense of like we're protected, we're invisible. But the interesting thing about the illusion is that actually, you know, people are still noticing us. We're not actually invisible.
0: Which gets to part of the premise of your book, which is that we have more influence than we think we do because people are paying attention to us. So how how does that happen? What, what are some of the influences that we have more, more than we believe we do in those types of situations?
2: Yeah. So I talk about several different biases. And one of them is this bias of thinking that people aren't paying as much attention to us as they actually are. And so with that one specifically, you know, we can go back to this idea that if people are paying more attention to me, That means when we're experiencing something jointly, right, I'm actually impacting their experience. They're experiencing it differently because I'm there, right? So I'm having this impact I might not otherwise realize. But also, you know, when I go about my daily, uh, you know, commute or whatever I'm doing, you know, people are noticing things like. What I'm wearing, even though it might be something you know I've been wearing every day for the past month or something, you know, other people are noticing it as this new thing, and they're kind of impacted by that and might want to go out and look like that. Um, or Bob Frank, who's another uh, researcher here at Cornell, talks about things like green behaviors, right? Mm. And so he looks at things like putting solar panels on your house or in your backyard, and how people notice that and then they mimic that. And we might not realize how much sort of our neighbors are like walking by our house and kind of wondering what's going on in our heads, why we're putting those solar panels on and how that's sort of making them start to think a little differently. And so he actually shows from like, sat or he's uh, talked about these studies where you look from like a satellite view and there's clusters of solar panels because people are impacting their neighbors basically to do these behaviors uh, that maybe they don't even realize that they're sort of having an impact on.
0: This reminds me of a commercial, and I'm I'm gonna forget who the commercial was for, but it, it basically is a camera angle that shows a person and they smile at somebody else, and then that person uh, reacts and they open the door for somebody else, and they like respond, and then they give some money to somebody. You know, home, you know, it's this whole kind of chain of events because that first person smiled at that other person, and it reminds me that. Inconsequential things in our own mind can have a bigger impact on others' daily lives. And that is just rippled throughout the the organization or your community or your family. Is that did they get that right in in, in that commercial?
2: I think so. I think I mean so one of the, the sort of points, the sort of bigger points in the book is that so much of the influence we have is unseen. Just necessity, Mm. right? When we convince someone of something, they don't always say, you convinced me of that, like, you know, (laughs) where they state the exact impact you had on them. Um, So a lot of influence happens in people's heads or down this, you know, row, as you're saying. So I impact one person, they impact someone else. I'm never going to see that. So I don't see like that ripple effect that something I do might have. Um, And this kind of reminds me I, I think it was a couple months ago so i've really my daughter's really into buying things for the person behind you at um the drive-through like she thinks we did it one time in like you know the middle of the pandemic we were like let's bring some joy and now she always like she always wants to buy things for the person so we've had to limit it a little bit but um yeah. <laughs> but great, we went though. to it's it is great it's really adorable how excited she gets and a few months ago we were in the line at some drive-through someplace she wanted to go. And she was like, let's, you know, buy the person behind us, is you know, food. And so we did that. And, you know, we're kind of giggling and happy and we go home. And later that night, I log into Facebook and someone I was like friends of friends with was like, I was at this drive-through and this would have been hours later and the person ahead of me bought my food so i bought the person behind me their food and i was like we started this chain that we we thought would just you know it would have gone like five cars and petered off but clearly based on this post and when it happened like it would have been hours that this was just going on oh, um wow. it was so cool yeah and she got to see basically the impact i was like can you believe that this person way down the line benefited from what we did and so i mean that's part of the reason she wants to keep doing it but <laughs>
0: Oh, that, yeah, that yeah, is wonderful.
1: Cool. You're just putting fuel on the fire now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One of the things that I, I think is fascinating about researchers is oftentimes this aspect of me search, right? This whole idea of I'm just curious about this. So, would, could you tell us a little story about why you got interested in understanding why we have more influence than we think?
2: Sure. So, the my sort of initial sort of step into this general sort of idea was all about asking for things. And that's Mm. been most of my research over the past 15 years has been on asking for things and basically how people are more likely to do things for us than we tend to think. And it started really when I was a graduate student and I was working with a professor and I had to collect survey data. And so I had to go down to Penn Station and ask strangers to fill out this questionnaire. And I would have to go up to people over and over and over and be like, will you fill out this questionnaire? And then wait for them to fill it out. And it was just this awful experience that has forever traumatized me uh, for Penn Station. (laughs) (laughs) But on the one hand, it was terrible. But I also was so surprised by how many people actually agreed to these requests. And so what happened is after days of doing this, I went back up to Columbia. I was a grad student at Columbia at the time working with Frank Flynn. And he and I were looking at the data of this, the survey data, and we weren't finding exactly what we expected. So we never actually used that data. But he was like, I can't believe how many people are agreeing to this request. It was like, I know, I was really surprised. I kept bracing myself for rejection and people kept, you know, being very polite and kind and just agreeing. And so we were kind of like, well, maybe that is the more interesting finding here. Nothing about like, it was something about, you know, how you ask, but like the general finding seemed much bigger that like people are just more likely to agree than we think. And so that's kind of how it started. And then we brought people into the lab and had them do basically what I had done. So we sent them out onto campus in New York City, and they had to go up to people, and we started just with the exact same task. Like, will you fill out a questionnaire? And they would guess how many people they'd have to ask before like five would agree, and then go out and keep track of how many people actually agreed. And they found just like me that many more people agreed than they expected.
0: And and it happened. So to get five people to agree to fill out the survey, they estimated, you know, maybe 20. And actually, it only took 10 is that it, it was basically about half, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Remember, right?
2: That's exactly right. So the numbers are about it was 20 to get five is what they thought. Um, but they actually had to ask 10. And when you think about that, you know, asking is so hard for so many people, it's this painful thing that if you tell people, you literally have to do it Half the amount of times that you think you're going to have to to achieve your goal, or it's twice as easy as you expect. That's a pretty big deal.
0: Well, and one of the other things that you talk about in the book is that when they come back, they're, they're kind of excited that, that this is a, that they actually had the trepidation going out. But you said in general, when they came back, they were pretty happy with themselves. And I think that's a key piece of this too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So when they come into the lab, We tell them, you know, you're going to be going out and asking people to fill out a survey. You're going to go up to strangers. And I'm telling you, they are not happy, right? They all, (laughs) for the most part, there's like a few people are like, okay. But for the most part, people look terrified. And they ask questions like, what if I can't do it? Do I still get paid for the study? Basically, what if it takes longer than the amount of time we had allocated? And so they really are expecting this to be terrible. Uh, And then they go out and do it. They almost all come back much more quickly than, you know, even we expected in the beginning, but certainly than they expected. And they come bounding back, like with this new energy, like, oh, my gosh, people are so much nicer than I thought. That was so much easier than I expected. It's like this incredible sort of intervention almost.
1: I love it. It actually reminded me of a situation where I went out and was... Over, over noon one day was trying to solicit some survey responses and found extremely high responses uh, from one group and really low responses from another group and the the guy I was working with said it the difference is that people who are saying no are on vacation and they're like out like with their families or they're like they're like and like they don't want to send their their free vacation time their very personal time and yet the people who were like on their way to work or just doing kind of work things like oh, fine i'll i'll t- i'll take time to answer <laughs> questions it's just work you know that, I'm, <laughs> that you're keeping me from and and i'm i'm wondering were there any or i was also thinking about francesca gino's uh, work on um the like wearing red shoes you know wearing red sneakers and sort of a pratfall effect how the researchers dressed have any impact or the the kinds of people that they were you know trying to talk to do you think that there were any any effects in in that area?
2: So I'm sure that there are some differences in terms of like dress and attractiveness and gender and race. And I mean, we could go on and on and on about like the specific sort of matching of the person asking to the person being asked. The nice thing about our studies is that we had just hundreds of different people. Come in dressed in hundreds of different clothes, you know, of different levels of attractiveness and all different genders and, you know, a little bit of diversity with race. That's always an issue in psychology studies, unfortunately. But so it was this sort of general pattern. And the vast majority of people did overestimate how hard it was going to be. So we didn't see like a big, like, oh, there is a group that's really accurate and another group that's really inaccurate. It was like most people are overestimating to some extent. But that said, I mean, there is research certainly showing that like being dressed in clothes that suggests some similarity with the person that you're yeah. asking, you know, affects whether they're likely to comply with your request. I'm sure attractiveness, there's some about like signaling authority. So like if you're wearing a suit versus, you know, just street clothes. So there's definitely differences. But I'd say the biggest sort of takeaway from a lot of the research that I've done is that those differences are pretty small when you compare it to the difference of what you expect to what actually happens. No. So like that jump is huge. 20 to 10 people that you have to ask is huge. Whereas the differences in these these other little manipulations tend to be a lot smaller.
0: So we talked with John Barge about a month ago and he was talking highly about your work and he brought up a, a study you did with cell phones and people asking for cell phones. Can you talk a little bit about that study in particular?
2: Yeah, so this kind of gets at, a, an interesting takeaway from these studies, right? So we talked about how people go out and they're nervous and they come back and they're like, oh, people are so nice and warm and friendly. And that's great, but we actually find in our research that the reason people say yes is because it's so hard to say no. And so yeah. that's where it kind of gets to be a more complicated effect. It's not just like, oh, people are so much nicer than you think, so you should just ask for things all the time. <laughs> Right. So, what we find is that what people are missing when they go out and ask is that it's really hard to say no to someone. And you can imagine, like, if you put yourself in the position of someone out, you know, in public and someone walks up to you and they're asking you for a favor, it's really hard to say no. You have to find an excuse. You have to find the words. It's really awkward and uncomfortable. And in many cases, it's it's easier to just sort of go along with it and agree than to sort of have that argument or have to reject somebody. And so, To look at that, we've done some studies that have kind of tried to actually mimic the old Milgram studies in the lab. So we've kind of taken it from people who go out. So we did have studies where people went out and asked for people's cell phones, and that was more of like a favor. But we also were like, well, what if we create this context where we ask to use people's cell phones in a way they're going to feel really uncomfortable with? Like, how hard would it be for people to say no? And so we did these uh, studies where we're trying to mimic the case of police search actually. So like if I was, you know, a police officer asking to search your phone or your bag, how hard would it be for you to say no? Because there is this thing called voluntary consent. And basically if you consent to allow a police officer to search whatever it is, your bag, your phone or whatever, they're allowed to search even if they don't have a warrant or probable cause or anything. All you have to do is say yes and they're allowed to search. And so we brought people into the lab and we said, we had our undergraduate RAs say, can we take your phone out for a minute? You can unlock it, and we're gonna search through it, uh, and then we'll bring it back to you. And we either asked people, would you do this? Hypothetically, we said, we're piloting something. We're curious if people would unlock their phones and hand them to our undergrad RA to take out and search. And then we had another group where we actually did ask them. And what we found is the vast majority of people said, no one's gonna do that, and I would not do that, certainly. But when we actually asked people, 97% in our first study agreed, just unlocked their phone and handed it over. It's the biggest effect I've ever found. Um, (laughs) And it really, it was crazy. It really came down to this idea that we think in the moment that it's easy to say no, right? And this is true for the people who go out and ask for favors, right? We think it's easy for people to say no to us. But in fact, it's really hard for people to say no. And in that context, you know, people are saying, They're agreeing to do something because it's so hard to say no to something, even though they don't really want us rummaging through their cell phones.
0: Yeah. There's an aspect of power dynamics that you also talk about in the book and what power amplifies that, I think, to to that degree, that unwillingness to be able to say no. and, And actually, there's some interesting pieces about even understanding somebody's likelihood to say no if you're in a position of power because you... Well, I'll I'll let you, you can talk a little bit about that because I think that's really fascinating too, when we think about the power dynamics of, of saying no and the people in those different situations. So can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really important aspect of this, in part because we think that when people have power, they know they have power. Right. So we think that if I'm in a position of power, I know the influence I have over other people. I can get people to do things, et cetera. But actually there's research showing, first of all, that people in positions of power are really bad at taking the perspectives of people who don't have power and people they have power over. There's a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, part of it is that it's just not that important for them. You know, it's really important when you're in low power to understand what the high power person wants and to kind of get in their head and adapt your behavior to, to their values and motives. When you have high power, you don't have to worry about it so much, right? So we just don't make the effort so much and we tend to just kind of go about our lives without considering that low power person's perspective. The other piece of that is when you have power, you feel like it's pretty easy to say no to things and you don't worry that much about what people are thinking or situational constraints. So there's this classic study where uh, people who are primed with power were sitting in a study and they had a fan blowing on them and it was really uncomfortable. And if they were primed with power, they didn't care about what the experimenter might've thought, or if they were allowed to move the fan, they just moved it. Right. They just didn't even worry. But if you weren't primed with high power, you just sat there uncomfortably, like letting the fan blow on you. And so together that means if you're in a position of power, you're not paying attention to the other person, how hard it might be for the other person to say no to you. You also think it's pretty easy to say no to people because you can say no to people. So basically, Even though in positions of power, it's harder for people to say no to you, you think it's easier for them to say no to you because that's what you would do. So it's this confluence of kind of biases that can lead us to really abuse our power sometimes because we think like, we'll just throw something out there. I'll make this unethical request or, you know, maybe I'll ask my subordinate out on a date or something. And if they don't want to do this thing, they'll just say no.
1: Yeah, you talked about in that section about uh, the dynamics between George Floyd and Derek Chauvin, and I thought that was pretty fantastic. Really important as Curtin and I live just miles away from where that, that happened. Could you comment specifically on some of, of what you wrote about that, Vanessa?
2: Yeah, so one of the things I talk about in that section is sort of the outpouring of stories that came onto social media that sort of connected all the sort of everyday indignities a lot of Black people experience to these, you know, violent outbursts by people in authority, for example. And I kind of talk about what happened after George Floyd and this outpouring of stories and how a lot of white people were kind of shocked by these stories. So there was a Twitter hashtag, That was something like Black and the Ivory, all about, you know, how black academics had been treated in their period in their, you know, graduate school uh, period of time or at other points in time in academia. And basically, there were all these stories that were, you know, really familiar and upsetting just over and over. People, you know, thinking that they were the janitor, even if they're wearing like Mm -hmm. a suit, Um, constant comments about people's hair uh and what i talk about is that often when we're in a position of power as many white people are as i talked about we don't need to consider the perspectives of people who aren't in that you know in lower power positions as much we kind of go about the world and don't have to consider so much how our words and actions impact other people and so we kind of interpret these things as one offs we think like oh yeah they mistook you but that was an honest mistake right mm. or oh yeah you know they just want, had a question about your hair. It was, you know, there was no uh, ill intent there. And all that may be true, but when you see it sort of laid out and just the frequency with which these things happen, you realize that it's just like this really problematic pattern. It's not just one-offs. And so one of the things I talk about is, and this is in the power section, is that it from the position of being white in America, where there is this systemic power, that we really have to make an effort to get the perspective of people who are in different positions of us and kind of understand where they're coming from and not just write things off as sort of one off and understand the impact of our like throwaway comments on other people
0: and to that point what you talked about earlier from a you know position of power we don't even know the impact that we're having on that. And maybe people don't realize that just by the nature of being white, we have more power in in those types of situations than people who are not. And if as being a male, we have more power in certain situations than, you know, female. And so all of those, it just comes back to this point of really taking purposeful approach to this to think through how are my actions being interpreted by others? And is that really the way that I might be thinking them one way, but in reality, is that the way that they're coming across? And it's it's up to us, not the other way around, I think is one of the big insights that I took from
1: your book.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely true.
1: A key part of this, uh, one of the themes that I found really interesting was communication and the, and the words that we use, right? In in you know, I'm wondering if you have some tips for people who are in the power positions to think about to sort of frame the way that they're thinking about words and the way that they're communicating.
2: Yeah, this is sort of an interesting point, and it feels a little bit like a contradiction uh, at times in the book. I think because. On the one hand, one of the things I talk about is that people aren't going to hold you to slipping and saying the exact right, you know, or not getting the words exactly right. So we may think that we're stumbling and saying things wrong and obsessing about, as I mentioned earlier, that stupid thing we said in a meeting. And people just aren't judging us as much for those kinds of things as we might think. But at the same time, words actually do matter. And so there is this sense of like, you want to be mindful of how your words might play to other people or how other people might interpret them. Actually be willing to sort of assess the things that you say, but not worry so much about maybe being articulate, right? So the word choice, the meaning behind it, the things you're trying to say, those can impact people in ways that we don't always see and we don't always recognize. And so it's important to pay attention to those things without, you know, worrying so much about the things we shouldn't be worrying about, like the fact that I was a little art- inarticulate, for example.
1: Yeah that that's terrific. I also wanted to go back to something you talked about earlier you mentioned words like similarity and authority and it got me thinking about your you know Bob Cialdini's influence and the the six pillars right you know I, how how can we how can we escape right <laughs> living in the 21st century we can't escape uh, Cialdini's uh, pillars of influence but but to what degree were they part of your thinking and I don't know kind of the processing of of, of writing the book
2: Yeah, I mean, and rightly so in terms of not being able to escape them. Those are some of the most sort of strong persuasive techniques out there. And it's absolutely incredible. I think one of the things that sort of ties some of his pillars towards to the things that I'm talking about, for example, one of them is liking. Right. So one Mm -hmm. of his sort of principles of influence is that people are more influenced by people that they like than um, people that don't like so much. Not so surprising, but actually very effective, right? And one of the things I talk about in the book is that we tend to underestimate how much other people like us, right? So we underestimate basically how much we can use and how hard we have to work to sort of use that principle of influence, right? We think we have to like work really hard to get people to like us because we underestimate how much they like us, but uh, in research by, again, Erica Boothby, whose work comes up uh, a number of times in, this, in the book, if you look at two people having an interaction, right, and she's done this in her experiments, two strangers will have a conversation and they both go away. And normally, you know, if this is the real world, you, you walk away and you're like, I don't know, did that person like me? I feel like I was really awkward. And you're kind of second guessing that whole interaction. But she shows that if you ask people, you know, how much do you think the other person liked you? And then you ask the other person, how much did you like that person, that we underestimate how sort of positively we came across to the other person. They actually like us more than we tend to think. And so when you sort of connect that to things like Cialdini's principle of liking, right, we don't, we tend to underestimate how much other people like us and therefore how much we can kind of use those sorts of principles of influence.
0: Yeah. So Given all the research that you've done, what are some of the biggest mistakes that people make when we're trying to influence other people? Obviously, Tim's talking about the six, now seven pillars of, of that's influence that's from, right. from from Cialdini. Are we over-indexing on some? Are we not doing other things? Where, where are the biggest mistakes that, that, that you found?
2: Well, so in my research, one of the absolute biggest mistakes that I find is that people don't ask for things or try to influence people in person, right? Mm. That again, we're so worried about saying things the right way and maybe crafting that perfect email so we can get our wording just right, uh, that we think that that's going to be the best way to influence another person is to just make the perfect case, right? We're just going to convince them of something. But in fact, so much of influence when it's in person, it's just this person in front of me, right? who I like, who is human, who I trust because they're like in the flesh in front of me is asking for something. And it's really hard to say no to someone who's asking me for something. Uh, And I trust this person because they're right in front of me. They don't have to convince me in an email why I should trust them or care about them, for example. And so I think in general, people really don't, they underestimate the value of in-person interactions. And we actually have Mm. some research where we ask people how many, we do the same kind of thing that I mentioned earlier, where people have to get people to fill out a a survey and they either ask them in person or they send emails. And in both cases, they're asking either strangers just on the street or they're sending emails to strangers. And uh, kind of unbelievably to me, people think that both of these ways of asking are going to be equally effective. So they think that people are basically going to say yes, just because they either want to or don't, right? It's again, this idea that like, people agree to things because they want to, or they don't because they don't want to. When in fact, so much of it is is about when someone's standing in front of me right there, it's hard to say no, and I'm going to help somebody out, right? But if I just get an email from a stranger in my inbox, you know, I don't know who this person is. I don't trust it. I'm just going to delete it. And knowing the sort of, actual findings is not that surprising. It's the crazy thing to me is that when we asked people in advance, they really thought both things would be equally effective. So that's definitely a major one.
1: That's terrific. Uh, A a second, What, what would be your number two?
2: Yeah. So my number two would probably be asking for things directly. So we have some research from back in the day when we first started doing this, where we had these scenarios where you basically either hinted to people about what you needed, or you came out and asked directly. And people thought, again, they thought the hinting would actually, in this case, be more effective than just coming out and asking for something. And I think it's because we think it's polite, right? We think we're giving, we're just being polite. We're like, oh, you know, I could really use a cell phone to make a call. I'm really in a bind, just waiting for that person to offer. But that person doesn't necessarily know what you're asking or, you know, it's unclear and there's nothing to say no to. So it's it's just not the same kind of situation. So if you actually ask someone, hey, I could could I please use your phone, that is just wildly more effective. And yet we tend to we tend to do this hinting thing because we don't want to come out and ask, partially because we think we're risking rejection, right? And that's no fun. Well,
0: is it partly due though because we know that it's hard for people to say no, and so we don't want to put somebody in an awkward position where they're not doing something because they want to do it? Is that part of the reason or potentially could be?
2: My guess, I don't have an empirical answer to this, but my guess is that that's true for some people and not for other people. I Uh, think for some people who are better able at sort of recognizing that dynamic and that they might be putting pressure on someone that they might hold back from asking for things. But I think in a lot of situations, it's more that you don't wanna come out and ask and be rejected, or it just could make Ah. for a really awkward interaction. Um, So I think, I think there is a small subset of people who really kind of see, like I talk about the responsibility of having power and the fact that we all kind of have this power over other people just through basic things, like asking for things. And there are some people who definitely see that responsibility, but I think probably more people are in the other camp.
1: Is there anything that you hope, is there one thing, you know, that again, we love the book, but is there one thing that you want to make sure that people take away? When they go out and they buy the book because they should go out and buy the book. I'm just going to say that. But after the, after they read it, is there a specific takeaway that you'd love for them to have?
2: Yeah. So I'd say there's there's kind of two big takeaways that I hope the book gives to people. One is a basic reassurance because I have used the data that I talk about in that book to reassure myself for years. Right. So every time I do like cringe over something I said and then obsess about it afterwards, I remind myself that the data shows I'm probably being harder on myself than other people are being on me. Every time I'm in a position where I do have to ask someone for something, I remind myself I have had my, you know, participants in my studies have asked like 15,000 people at this point to do things and they're way more likely to do it than we think. So I kind of rely (laughs) on that data for my own reassurance. And so, my hope is that it will give other people that same sense of reassurance. And then the other piece is that I hope it makes people more mindful of the influence mm-hmm. that they have. And so that's another kind of big part of the book. I'd say a lot of the book is very positive and reassuring, but there is this element of, again, you know, to get cheesy and Spider-Man-y, you know, that with influence comes responsibility. Um,
1: uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> and so. There is this element of, you know, instead of, we tend to sort of be on a hunt for getting more influence all the time and for ways to gain influence, but I'd really like people to take a beat and become a little bit more mindful of the influence that they have all the time over people in ways that they might not even realize, and to make sure that that influence that they are already having is positive before they kind Mm. of reach out and try to gain more influence.
1: Yeah, it, it's so cool to hear you say that because it, it reminds me of a couple of things. When we we talk to researchers in uh, uh, who are working on like science deniers or or uh, you know conspiracy theorists, and it's like why even talk to those people? Why even try to convince them? And the researchers come back and say, have the conversation because we don't know what kind of effect we could have. And the other thing that strikes me was a conversation we had with uh, Christina Bicchieri, um, a, a couple of years ago at at UPenn, and and we were talking about how complex social norms are, and she just looked over and she said, "And don't forget, you're you're part of the social norm. Like you're influencing, you're part of that." And I love what you're contributing to that body of of work, uh, Vanessa. I think it's really cool. Uh, I you. do have a question for you though about. Um, our crack shot researchers have under have come to understand that you were at once, um, a virtuoso trombone player, trombone player might be, might be too much, but, but you know, you've had a little musical influence in your life and we're not so much interested in your, your past life as a, as a virtuoso, but tell us a little bit about what's on your playlist now and, and, and have, did your playlist change pre COVID to post COVID?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. I will say though, I, the trombone thing i in 3rd grade we had to pick an instrument and i picked trombone thinking it would be fun i have no idea why and then i had to walk home from the bus stop every day as a little 3rd grader <laughs> carrying my trombone oh, and oh, no. within weeks i switched to clarinet so <laughs>
0: <laughs> tuba
1: would have probably been the only worse instrument <laughs> yeah, to right. pick right there you absolutely, go absolutely yeah, yeah. I like I like the way you think about it though. It was very practical. It's like if I have to drag this damn thing around, <laughs> it better exactly. be like That's fantastic. Okay, how did clarinet go, by the way? So was clarinet fantastic?
2: Uh, clarinet was pretty fun. Yeah, I did that for a while, and you know it was fun. Um, once I started caring about being cool, I I kind of felt like it wasn't the coolest instrument, and that I'd wish I had picked something else. What would but, have been yeah, cooler? It was fun. What, what would you have? Uh, probably percussion. To? I feel like the girls who were playing percussion were the were the cool chicks.
1: Wow. Okay. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh so uh, let's get to your playlist. What, yeah. what are you listening to these days?
2: I mean, so I have always had a very eclectic taste in music, but there are certain bands that are like always in the rotation. And I don't think that it's changed in you know 10 years. So um I'd say the national is always there. Uh-huh. Vampire weekend is always there. I love them. David Bowie is always in my playlist. So those are some major ones. And then, you know, actually the one thing that did change, I just realized during the pandemic is that I was always kind of a music snob. So like I lived in New York city for my whole twenties and it was all about like, You know, the cool bands at Luna Lounge in the Lower East Side and like doing like finding like the next cool thing. And you weren't supposed to like anything popular. But in the past year, you know, stuck at home and thinking like, I should know what the kids, my students, like the kids are listening to right now. So I started listening to Harry Styles, who I had, you know, never wanted to listen to before. Uh, Billie Eilish. Uh, and Taylor Swift. And now they are Mainstays. I've got to say, <laughs> I could not believe it. I was like, I just wow. didn't know what to expect. And I was blown away. They're great. Well, that's
1: total ear candy. I mean, yeah. on, on one level. And I, I'm not saying that in a bad way, because it's just so incredibly infectious. The saccharin is delightful for us. On the other hand, you know, there's a lot of depth too. You know, Taylor Swift is a tremendous songwriter. She doesn't just stop at what's a good hook, you know, she she really plows into some interesting topics. So I think you I think there's lots of good reasons to be into those. Yeah. Uh, Billie Eilish definitely, Harry Styles maybe a little less for me, but but you know, again more ear candy than than depth, but that's it's still good stuff. Yeah, yeah.
2: and now I can talk to the kids. That was that yes. was the original goal, ah, and now I can yeah. be like, yeah, make jokes about watermelon sugar in my uh, lectures. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, it is interesting though the the musical taste of. Uh, so I have a fifteen year old and eleven year old, and there are there's musical genres that I would never listen to that I am listening to just because a. We get in the car and that's what they want to listen to. So we, we have to listen to that. But then B, there is a part that I want to understand what they're listening to and try to have a little bit of that connection with them. Same thing, I think, as you were talking about with your students. So it opens up our musical uh, you know, genres that we can enjoy and maybe find some, some nuggets within the pop culture of yeah. what's out there. So. And
2: we've been trying yeah. to go the other way too, where we get, you know, I have a seven year old, so we're like trying to get her into the music we listened to in the nineties and stuff. So we've been introducing her to grunge. Wow. Yeah. And uh, yeah, her reaction was very funny. She was like, Oh, so it's like music, but without any music. <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> I like has it. She, has she heard Kurt Cobain? Oh my gosh.
2: Yeah. This is, I think this was actually in response to Nirvana. <laughs> Wow. Well, and,
0: and, and to your point, though, with even with your students, right? As you're you're talking about this, you probably are having more influence on them than you think. And even some of the musical stuff, if you do have musical
1: conversations with them. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, there you go. It goes both ways.
1: So we are so grateful for your time for the conversation, Vanessa. Really, uh, thank you so much. Thanks for being a guest on Behavior Groups today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun.
0: Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Vanessa, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our non-influenced brains by each other, but we influence a whole lot of other people's brains.
1: Because <laughs> you the, know we don't influence each other at all, right, Tim? Not a, no, no, I, not zero, just totally. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if
0: she's done any research on like close business associates and friends and the know. you know does it does it yeah. increase that influence or does it decrease it cuz you go oh
1: my god it's Tim again or Kurt again oh my god what are they doing right which automatically starts to discount like oh no <laughs> oh that's there there he goes again he's going to go do that you know soapbox thing i'm not going to pay any attention to what he says so i can only imagine it's positive i don't know i mean it, with us, it's positive. So with me, I mean the influence. I'm sorry, let me say this. The influence that I have on you is positive. So yeah. pretty much it. <laughs> Yes. Yes, I
0: would have to agree with that. My wife it, would too. It, she was. Your yeah, you're, you're a much nicer man once you've started hanging out with Tim. Otherwise, you're just an asshole. So okay. you know, there you
1: go. Okay. Where do we want to start with with our fantastic conversation with Vanessa?
0: Do you like chocolate, Tim?
1: Oh love chocolate yes all
0: right do you like chocolate with other people though that's the thing this is that was amazing to me i mean yeah. this idea yeah. that our experiences are what did she say amplified when we are yeah. doing them with other people not not necessarily just even friends or acquaintances it could be total strangers just sitting in the room with you and that amplifies our experience of whatever it is good or bad which is very yeah. cool
1: well, I mean, contrast the difference between going to a restaurant. I mean, you and I have traveled a lot individually, and if you're out on a business trip, it's oftentimes the case that you end up eating alone. Mm-hmm. You know, contrast that experience with just having dinner with your wife. You know, mm-hmm. just having one other person there and enhances the or amplifies to use amplifies. word yeah. amplifies the experience. I think yeah. that that's really important to 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 remember. It also makes me think about. Derek Sievers pointed out a video when he oh. did his TED talk, right? Um, it's a bunch of people at a concert, they're on a hillside, and one guy stands up, takes off his shirt, and just starts dancing. There's like a group of a couple dozen people, and they're kind of looking at him like he's a nut. Because he's <laughs> dancing really like totally spaced out, jamming,
0: like drug-induced dance, right? It is, it is trippy dancing, everything. People are looking at him weird. All right, continue.
1: Then, then out of sort of nowhere, with all the faces just glaring at him, one of the guys in, in the crowd stands up, takes his shirt off, and joins him, which all of a sudden legitimizes the whole thing. And almost instantly the whole crowd stands up and they start, you know, jamming. Yeah, I mean, and, shortly afterwards, that the the
0: one follower. Approved of this, and so all of a sudden people are noticing what this these people are doing, and they're being influenced by that. And pretty soon, the entire within the the viewfinder of the of the screen of the shot that we get to see, almost everybody. Whereas before everybody was sitting, now everybody is up and they're dancing all this trippy hippie dance, you know. So it's pretty cool. (laughs) It Uh, was very cool. We'll 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 try to find that that clip and link it into uh, the. The show notes, and then we can check to see how good our memory is because neither of us have seen this recently. And I don't know if he took his shirt off or not. That's what I was going to say. Like the second guy, I don't remember if he did. So it'll be interesting to see. There you go. So, all right. So I think the implications from this, uh, at least this piece of this, is look good or bad. uh, Having others in the room amplifies those feelings. And so, think about how we live our lives. How do we? How do we do things? Do we eat alone? Do we go out with others and do we want to, right? So maybe this idea that, oh, if I eat alone, I'm going to focus in on the food and the ambiance and different things. You talked about that at, at business meetings, right? And so when I go down to the, the hotel you know, place where we eat, yeah, yeah, I'm like eating alone and I always try to savor that food. But I'm realizing now that's probably a mis- misnomer. I probably don't enjoy the food as much as I would if I was with somebody else. So how do we live? our lives and do we bring others into that and then also if you're in business think about how your product or service is being consumed is it being consumed with others because then you have to think about the impact that just having those others in the room or in that in that vicinity have on your product or your service so is it a Is it a marketing campaign? Is it a marketing campaign that is seen on your phone individually? Is it a marketing campaign that's seen in a movie theater on the big screen with others in there? So those are nuances that I don't think we always take into consideration as we're going about our lives and our
1: business. So there you go. Absolutely. I would also want to point out that it's a good thing to be intentional about who you're consuming with. Right. Yeah. Cause I would never want to consume with you. So, the, oh, sorry. That came out. Oh, my God. That was, no, That was your outside voice. Garrett. Oh, damn it. But, but yeah, you we, we want to be thoughtful about, okay, I'm going to have this experience. You know, we're going to a show, doing, you know, going to take a walk in the park, whatever. Who do you want to do it with? You know, that's that's I think that that's a, a reasonable question to be intentional about answering.
0: I think so. And we've talked about this on the show before, but emotions are contagious. And so, you know, if you're going and you have that friend who might be a friend for whatever reason, but that friend is a Debbie Downer all the time, you know, it's sometimes difficult to kind of get yourself to, you know, want to go out with that person, particularly in a place, or do you want to? do that. So I, yes,
1: definitely be intentional about that. It makes me think of Eric Idle singing always look at the bright side of life <laughs> at, the, at the end of the life of Brian. Yes. As he's hanging on the cross. Yes, yeah. all right. Um okay, let's yeah. I can't do the whistle. <laughs> <Exactly. you go. laughs> uh let's also make sure that we talk a little bit about uh the spotlight effect and oh, yes. how she's updated that in a really cool way. I love these sort of apparent contradictions in the way that she explains it, which adds some complexity. It doesn't make it so easy because it was just easier for me before her research just to go, well, you know, I most people just think that, you know, other people are always watching them. Okay, boom. But it's more complex than that. And I rather like the idea that we think that they're looking at us all the time, especially if we've got the bad hair day or something like that, but they're not always looking at us
0: and but,
1: oh and yeah go yeah, there go ahead, you go. Go ahead no. but
0: and or yeah. not but and and right and yet when we think we're invisible when we're when we think people aren't paying attention to us as she mentioned on the train or the subway or the bus those are moments where we actually have more influence and people are paying more attention to what we're doing than we think and that right contradiction that contradiction on both sides, right Like if I spill something on my shirt and I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm just embarrassed everybody's looking and seeing that spill on my shirt really isn't happening or getting up on stage or being on a podcast and making a flub with something I say, which happens every single time we get on the show right and I go, oh my gosh everybody's gonna <laughs> gonna comment on that and yet they don't because right. they they don't notice that they don't pay attention to that they' they look over it. Or they even go, oh, it's a pratfall effect. I like that person more because of it. That, I think, is really important when we think about the limitations that that puts on us, right? Our own limiting beliefs that I can't get up and do a presentation because what if I flub up? I'm going to be so embarrassed. Everybody's going to notice I'll never live it down versus, oh, I can flub up and you know what? big scheme of things it's not going to be that that important people are going to overlook it they're going to make a thing so we shouldn't have those limiting um beliefs but on the contrary as you were talking about right this idea that all right i don't have to pay attention because nobody's paying attention to me when i'm out for that walk or i'm going in the grocery store or i'm on the bus but yet they do so the idea i mean think about mask wearing today think about Some of those other factors that, hey, if I am out there and I think I'm invisible, so ah, I'm just running in the grocery store for a couple minutes, you know, just to grab you know a soda and get out, I don't need to put my mask on. People are paying attention. But people will pay attention and they'll notice that. And you're then sending a signal that you may not want to be sending to others because you just don't realize that people are paying attention to you. So,
1: yeah. And uh, that kind of leads me into just the way she talked about, you know, choosing words, the way that we talk to other people. You know, we don't have to over-engineer everything that we say, but words matter, right? What? No, they don't. (laughs) And so it's, it's it's a good thing to be careful or just to be thoughtful in the way that you approach people. And of course, she also says, hey, don't beat around the bush. If you've got a question for someone, just ask them. Or a favor, right? Yeah, ask directly. I
0: loved that part because so often I find myself doing this, right? Trying to beat around the bush. Well, you should know this. Particularly, this is the interesting thing. I think it happens more with people that are close to me, you know? Like my wife, my kids, you, right? I just make assumptions that you should know what I'm thinking. Why
1: why would you think that I would ever do that? I mean, (laughs) not like, I'm asking for a friend. (laughs) But this idea that, well, you know me
0: enough, so you should know that when I'm saying, "Oh gosh, I'm tired," and and different things, that well, maybe you should, you know, just go and do whatever it is that you need to do, as opposed to. That was a horrible. See, this is that thing that I have a spotlight effect on me now because I I was starting a conversation, I was going down it, and I totally lost
1: the track of where I was going. And then it had made no sense. It made
0: absolutely no sense.
1: Well, let's have sort of a Ulysses-style contract that whenever we come into blind spots with each other, let's just point them out. How about that? All right. Okay, <laughs> that, that was not super convincing. <laughs> but it's
0: just, I was just trying to think of like, oh shit, what are you gonna tell me? <laughs> <So I> go, <laughs> oh my god, I don't know. This is gonna be more one-sided than I think because it's gonna be all yeah. oh, Kurt, By the way, here, 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 and here. Here you go. That's that's it. But no, I agree. <laughs> oh, anyway, that- insight though, insight for people. Just yes. ask. Just be straight. Forward and ask for what you want. If you want to go out for dinner instead of cooking it, let's say let's go out for dinner. If you need a favor from somebody, hey, can I borrow your phone?
1: <gasps> yeah. Can I there borrow your phone? Well, of course you can, right? Because 97% of the time people are gonna say yes. <laughs> Which probably. I love that. That that
0: was a great research thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. The phone study is absolutely fantastic. This is like the ultimate. This is, well, not the ultimate, but it is another great notch in the say-do-gap bedpost, as far as I'm concerned. This is just fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Bedpost? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What was that about choosing
0: our words and our analogies uh, wisely there, Tim? There we go. Yeah, think about that. Another another post
1: in the the bedpost. Uh, One of my older brothers gave me 30 Days to a More Powerful Vocabulary. It was a book. You remember what books were? Okay. So Those it was a things, book, yeah, they have paper, uh, the paper or, yeah, yeah, words. Yeah, yeah. It was called Thirty Days to a More Powerful Vocabulary when I was like in sixth grade. And he said, You really need to read this. And so <laughs> Yeah, thank you. And like throughout my high school career, he would get a company he was like, You're just you're better at a, you know, he would just say that, to me that I'm better at abusing the language than using it. Ooh. <laughs> Yeah, what a brother.
0: There you go. Well,
1: It was it was very loving. It really t- was totally. And but it, I think it also helped to make me a songwriter. Mm. You know, you kind of have to float and flex and find new images, and you can't just stick to the nuts and bolts all the time or, when you're or, or, a song. Or, the, or
0: just the notches in the bedpost. Either. <laughs> you know, you you got to make notches maybe in a table leg or notches in you know I don't know where else would you make notches. So
1: yeah, I I don't know. Okay, what? All right. So so,
0: but with that, I want to end on this because I thought it was a wonderful little story, and I think you did too. This idea, the pay it forward experience of Vanessa and her daughter. Oh yeah. And just the fact again, one simple act, and that one simple act reverberates over and over and over, and so. I think it's a great metaphor for thinking about this, the, you know, her book, we have more influence than we, than we think that, Hey, one act of gratitude, one act of kindness, one smile on the bus, one, whatever it is, you don't know the, the butterfly effect that that can have. And if you think about the moments in your life where you have the opportunity to do something nice for somebody else and to influence them in a positive way, well, hey, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we could just recap with a couple of tips here. Perfect. Just want to just say that as you were just saying, first tip, we have more influence, more power than we tend to think. Right? Let's pay attention to to the base rates. Um, and maybe this is maybe one of the should be one of the tips that even Vanessa, who is super introverted and, you know, like not really interested in Having those extroverted kind of exchanges, pay attention to the base rate data. People will respond to you, or they're more likely to respond to you than not. So, so just go ahead and 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 give it a shot. Um, I also want to say that uh, don't beat around the bush. Just ask people directly when you've got a favor, when you when you need something, when you have a preference. State your preference.
0: Yeah. Hey State Tim. Them. Hey, Tim, by the way,
1: <laughs> can, can I get 50 bucks? Can you give me 50 bucks, man? You're doing this on the podcast dude, just to just when see, should I you're do it? Shaming me? Me. But
0: now, come on, you, you dude, I need 50 bucks. Can't you give it to me? Yeah, then, anyway,
1: keep going, keep going. Sorry. Um, so maybe this one applies even more. I'm thinking that it's important for us to remember to not be so hard on ourselves, mm-hmm. right? A slip of the tongue happens we we make mistakes constantly and it's easy i'm going to speak from very much my own experience in this (laughs) and you know me like man a tiny little slip becomes magnified in my mind and and can be like a death sentence and it's not you know uh things slip ups happen constantly prat falls all all sorts of stuff just go with it just live just keep going
0: if if there's any proof to that at all, just listen to any one of our podcasts. There you go. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's it's yeah. so true. And it's so, I think to your point, I think there are so many people, everybody, we we all fall into that trap. We all fall into that ruminating over, gosh, I kind of flubbed up there or I wore the wrong thing or I said the wrong thing in that situation. Yeah. And 99% of the time, it's not a big deal and that yeah. is the thing that we just have to stop worrying about and stop limiting ourselves and stop beating ourselves
1: up over that so yeah. okay does this microphone make my butt look big i guess that's my question <laughs> <laughs> no no but the the
0: headphones do the microphone is fine <laughs> Okay, well, I think that needs to wrap this up because we could go down really weird rabbit holes with that. So so thank you. Thank you, people, for listening to behavioral groups. We appreciate
1: it. We certainly do. And we also want to express some special gratitude to a U.S.-based listener who goes by Waxwing. Kind of Waxwing. Cool Waxwing, right. yeah. Uh, we're always grateful for pleasant reviews, and this one was no different. Waxwing wrote, and I'm going to quote, always thrilled when a new episode lands in the queue. Tim and Kurt explore many meaty topics, hosting an endless stream of fascinating guests. I love the banter and the grooves. Highly, highly recommended. So just thanks. thanks. That was just so we, cool. We have meaty topics. Nah, nah, oh I'm my serious. gosh. I love
0: I that. Think, <laughs> thank you, Waxwing. That is that yes. makes our day makes us smile. And maybe our smile will be contagious and it'll pass on to others, and, and then the whole world will end up smiling because of one thing that you did. Right there. <laughs> could, thank you. There you yeah, go. Could,
1: could be, yeah.
0: it could be. It could be and 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 people, you know, you could go out and make us smile as well by just leaving us a brief two sentence review. We would appreciate yeah. it. And that goes a long 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 way in helping other like-minded people who want to smile find our podcast. It sure does.
1: And with that, we hope that after you leave us a review, just <laughs> that you take we're, some We're asking, we're asking people, right? We just need go to and have a direct
0: ask. Yes. Yes. Well, not you gotta ask oh. nice you can't oh, yes. ask mean <laughs> <All right. laughs> d- 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 oh please. my gosh you just ruined everything and now I'm gonna have ruminate over this all <laughs> night long no. So, no please people please go out and leave us a review it would be so
1: nice of you and we'd be so appreciative of it thank you take heart with Vanessa's words this week That's maybe that's the point point. and hopefully this week you'll go out and find your groove